Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast designed for those who want to know the truth for themselves. They don't want to be told what to believe. They want to discover the power of their own faith by digging a little deeper and understanding what Jesus said and taught. Here's the basic schedule for the Salty Pastor. Every Tuesday, we do an in-depth analysis of the biblical passages Foothills will be preaching in the coming Sunday. The podcast drops at 4 p.m. on Tuesdays. Then on Thursdays, the podcast focuses on how the biblical principles challenge the secular worldview we are being fed by the media, universities, and self-appointed social prophets trying to dominate our society. Let's welcome our very own salty pastor, Dr. Douglas Peake. <laughs> now, Pastor, Foothills is beginning a new study for this Christmas season. Yep. Tell us about how this brand new series for the month of December. Well, we're going to, of course, talk about Jesus. We love Jesus. <laughs> no shock there. <laughs> I like how you kind of laid out the schedule a little bit, you know, for people to understand. And so if you're a person who really wants to dig deeper in the scripture, you're interested in uh, biblical study and analysis and exegesis and those types of things. Listen to all the podcasts, uh, odd numbered, like one, three, five, seven, and so forth, because those are always the Bible study portion. And then if you're a person who's like, I really want to figure out how biblical principles influence and impact the culture around me and how I should you know, view what's happening, listen to the even-numbered podcasts. And the great thing about it is we encapsulate everything on Sunday when we preach about it. So most podcasts look you know f what happened behind like so they will preach a message on sunday and then the next week they'll go more in depth on it but we decided to be different and contrarian and so we do everything before we don't like to do things the normal way here at <laughs> we do we, it we do it the way we we need to do if we it. the way we feel called so we're gonna be talking about jesus in this series and as many of you know christmas is a national holiday a federal holiday in america but what you may not realize is that it is also celebrated as a holiday in over 160 nations across the globe. Wow. And when you take into account that there are only 193 nations around the globe, that means 82% of the world's nations celebrate Christmas or the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, when you honor someone's birth, what you're doing is you are honoring them. You honor their life. You honor their impact on you as an individual. You honor their impact on the world around you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend this month honoring the birth of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to honor is that Jesus is king. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> You're like, okay, that's okay. good. <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that. Well, I just was laughing because I've been, I've been translating that phrase. So our whole graphics package for for this series we're doing <laughs> jesus is king in like all the different languages all the different languages i did like 35 different languages and so my wow. brain just took a second to be like okay that's the english one that's i don't know english why one. i don't know why that took so long but well, you know, Jesus is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. And over the course of this study, we're going to look deeply into three major things about what it means to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First, in order to be the King of Kings, you always have to study or look at where did a king come from? In order to be a king, you have to verify your claim to the throne, and often that was through your ancestry to prove your bloodline, right. that you had a specific claim to the throne. Now, in America, we don't uh, treat this as too big of a deal. 
uh, at least consciously, because we rejected the monarchy and its approach during the revolution in the 1700s. But in reality, what we do is we practice this uh, all the time existentially in our site. Like, you know, you look at just all of the uh, political parties and what they do, you know, uh, the process is a process of I have a better claim to be the president or whatever. And it's interesting how, you know, like you see these dynasties of people like the Bush dynasty. And then you had the Clintons and you just it just it just kind of goes my, on and on. My family has been groomed yeah. for this. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that it, that even though we don't acknowledge a a blood claim, we do still practice it, you know, in a way, in a kind of a practical way, this concept. So uh, for for thousands and thousands and thousands of recorded human history, kings always had to have a claim. So that's the biggest thing we're going to do is what claim does Jesus have in order to be called the king of kings and lord of lords? The second thing is this, is what is the king's fear of influence? In other words, what impact did the king and his government have on the world? So we're going to look into that. And then third thing we're going to look into to, in order to be the king of kings and lord of lords is how powerful was the king? You know, if we look back in human history and you say, uh, who was Genghis Khan? Well, people, oh, I know Genghis Khan, right? Because why? He was a powerful warlord that conquered a massive am amount of of the globe you know i mean his when we look back and we say well who was charlemagne and he said, oh well he was a powerful powerful ruler because it extent his his empire extended so far and so what happens is we look at the claim to be the king of kings and the lord of lords or the greatest ruler ever based on the size of an empire right and right. that's power how much power land can they conquer and how many groups of people can they subjugate and bring under one umbrella and so that's really a lot of of what we're going to look into is how powerful was the king because kings are judged on the basis of how much power they have and how they wield that power. And so how much power does Jesus have and how did he wield that power? So by looking more closely at these three things, we're going to discover that Jesus truly is the king of kings mm -hmm. and lord of lords. So let's get started with the first one. Um, you stated that in order for a king to be a king, they had to have a claim to the throne, a birthright, as it were. What claim does Jesus have to be considered not just any king, but the king? <laughs> well, his earthly ancestry is well documented in the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, and then in the Gospel of Luke very early on. And what we see is through his earthly father, Joseph, and through his earthly mother, Mary, they track the lineage, the bloodline back to the house of David. And this is important because in the Old Testament, there was a thing called the Davidic covenant. And what it was is that God made a covenant with David. And in that, he made a promise that the Messiah would come through the bloodline of David. He would be the seed of David. So, so his earthly ancestry is fairly well documented. And so we have that. But what is also interesting is 
his spiritual ancestry or his spiritual seed, his derivation, his origination. And this is commonly known as the incarnation, which I always say is not a breakfast drink. (laughs) So the incarnation is Jesus was not just uh, any baby. He was not just any human being that was born like all of us, but he was preexistent to his earthly existence, to being born. So he was God and he was one with God before he became a human being. And so his spiritual ancestry, his spiritual claim is that he was God before he became a human being. And this is the orthodoxy of the church. This is early, early Christianity. It is absolute foundational Christianity. And that's why we call it orthodox. Uh, he, it is the foundational stone on all that we believe about what Jesus was able to accomplish on the cross, what he was able to accomplish through his resurrection, how he was able to start the church and the role and purpose of the church. All of these things are built upon the fact that he was God before he became a human being. It is the one and only truth on which all other truths of Jesus are built and known. So you have groups like the Gnostics, the Docetists, the Marconians, the Nestorians, Arians. They all challenged this truth. Hold on. Uh, just for those of us <laughs> who may or may not know who those people are, can you um, sure. can you give me a brief rundown of those people? Well, the first three, four hundred years of the church, the first, you know, three main centuries of the church, is that there were these groups that rose up and taught specific things. The Docetists denied that Jesus came in the flesh. So basically, well, Jesus was pre-existent God, but that means he couldn't become flesh because that wouldn't work. And then the Gnostics, of course, uh, taught that Jesus was not completely God. They denied that he was full deity. He was a a demiurge is the term they used. So he was like a lesser type God. And they took this a little bit, I think, too, from the, the Roman Hellenistic uh, pagan say, belief. That's, I've heard that in like demigods of like Hercules yeah. was the son of Zeus, so he's not a full God or right. whatever kind of a thing. And some people have tried to say, uh, some some atheists and secular humanists say that the the myth of Jesus being both was adopted over time through this pagan belief, you know, and pagan stories. But uh, this is just simply false because from day one, you know, there, this was the foundational belief of the apostles. Uh, and then they, of course, taught the church this as they all started to turn to Christ. The, the Marcionians, they denied the Jewish lineage of Jesus. So they denied his Jewish heritage and ancestry uh, the Nestorians they they were interesting and that is as they said well Jesus was completely God and Jesus was completely human but not at the same time because you can't combine the two so their heresy was basically a, a dividing or a separating of the two and then the last one which is the Arian heresy which is probably the most influential on Christianity even today they denied the Trinity. And they mm. basically said that Jesus 
was the son of God. And so he was lesser than God. Okay, so they denied the Trinity. And this is the reason why Athanasius, which was a young uh, a monk, argued against at at that first council called by Constantine, the emperor of Rome, uh, because there was this Arian versus classic orthodoxy. And so what they did in order to work this out, they came together and they said, okay, the first thing we've got to do to figure this out, what the standard orthodoxy of, of the teaching of the church is going to be, we've got to figure out what are the documents that we are going to say are authoritative so that we can actually have a decent discussion. And, you know, in philosophy today or any discussion, they always start with, okay, let's define the terms. What do they mean? So that's what they're doing. Let's define our authority. And at that point, that's when they overwhelmingly articulated or set the standard of 27 books in the new Testament. And basically all they did is they go, these are the books that everybody and every church throughout the entire Roman empire, middle East agree were written by the apostles or, or were eyewitnesses to the events. Everybody agrees. They all accept that. And so that became known as the canon because that means standard. Right. And so that's what the, the canonical scriptures are in the old test uh, or the, excuse me, the new Testament of the 27 books. And they affirm the, uh, the 39 books of the old Testament. And this is of course, after they did that, they came to understand, or they, they wrote what is known as the Nicene creed. And so very close to the apostles creed. So consequently, that's why the Arian heresy was so influential because it kind of galvanized the, to the, clarify the, the deity yeah, yeah that jesus was and when you read the nice increase stars off you know he they just go on and on about he was pre-existent he was fully one with the father they're of the same substance they were the same thing of the same mind blah, blah 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 they keep going on and on and on and then and then it says but he then he became flesh and he walked among us he was completely human at the same time so that was a, a refutation of the Arian heresy. Now, his earthly ancestry, his biological ancestry, and his spiritual ancestry come together as one. And what's interesting is every single early heresy of the church tried to deny that. And even today we see these things being taught. For instance, uh, this is well known. This is not a criticism. It's just a statement of truth. And that is the LDS church teaches that Jesus is a lesser than God the Father. So they teach and adhere to the Arian doctrine that the Trinity does not exist, three is one. Mm-hmm. So that's what they teach and that's what they hold to. And to my knowledge, they haven't made any effort to change that position to date. So what are the passages in the scripture that show Jesus was God before he became human? Well, first, uh, 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah the prophet said in verse 14 of chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel means God with us. Now, we look down then, and we see that that is the case. And what's really amazing is this is one of the most powerful proofs 
of the veracity or the efficacy of Christianity. And the reason why is because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and they began to interpret them, it was from a group of people called the Essenes, and they were like uh, merchants and librarians. And so mostly what they fought was ledgers, you know. Oh, they paid four shekels for three you know, this of barley. And so it was just a whole boatload of accounting books. You know, how boring is that? But they also recorded all kinds of other literature. And what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a complete book of Isaiah. And so it's basically like an original copy. Yeah, like an original copy. And here's two things that they found. The first thing they found is that that copy that they have of the book of Isaiah reads almost exactly like our modern-day translations of the book of Isaiah, okay? The second thing they found is is that the earliest you could date that copy was 150 years before Christ was born. So that's pretty significant evidence. So there's no tampering. There, there, yeah, there could be zero tampering. You can't go, because some of the most powerful proofs about the deity of Christ is that it was prophesied that he would come centuries before he showed up. And what a lot of uh, atheistic people have done is they try to say is, oh, well, they just went in and they wrote all that wrote after the, the fact. Okay. Yeah, to make it fit. And that worked really, really well until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and kind of dropped a nuclear bomb on that theory. <laughs> and so, but here, here's some of the other verses uh, in the New Testament that really talk about this as well. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or Logos is the Greek word there, and that's capitalized because it's a direct reference to Jesus Christ. John called Jesus the Word, or the Logos, the truth. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that was come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. So here we see that Jesus, the Logos, was with God, was God. In the beginning, he and God brought all things into existence. So we see this unification of Jesus is God. And it's interesting. Uh, today, there's a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they go around, they knock on doors. Right. And what they always want to do, and they'll leave these tracks called the, the lamp lighter or the lamp post or something. I can't remember what their the little track they hand out is, but... What they do is they always want to argue this. And what they try to do is they adhere to, I think it's, uh, it's similar to the Docetist heresy. And that is that they always try to argue this verse by saying, well, it doesn't say that Jesus was God. It just says, and a word, the word, there was a God. And what they try to do is they try to use the Greek to, uh, make a difference by saying there's not a definitive article, but in Greek there are no articles. So, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, just because you have stuff in your head doesn't mean you're right. Um, and so there's that issue there. And what they're trying to say is that he wasn't one with the Father. They're trying to deny the Trinity as well, very similar to the Arian heresy. But what 
Verse 14 then says, and this is why it's so important to always read the Bible because you read things in context, right? Right. So right down in verse 14, it says this, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in John chapter one, what we see here is that uh, preexistent was Jesus as God. And then he came in the flesh as a baby. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, listen to these words. He is the, meaning Jesus, that's the, the pronoun there. He is the image of the invisible God. So when Jesus says to Thomas, he says, hey, when you see me, you see the Father. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now you see what you're seeing here is that he is God, the creator. Verse 17, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he brought he reconciled all things, not just here on earth, you and I, but also reconciled all things in the heavens. You know, I mean, I think that's a fascinating principle to think about, because a question I get a lot of times is, is people when they're suffering is they'll read Job and they're like, well, why does Satan get the authority to stand in the presence of God and, and accuse Job? And so. Uh, those are some really great questions that I have on my list to ask God when I go to heaven. <laughs> but uh, but I think what we do is we see just a little foreshadowing of of that there was a, a there's a spiritual battle happening, right? And in this spiritual battle, you know, the when Christ was crucified on the cross and shed His blood, the blood of the Lamb reconciled everything, not just here but in heaven as well. And so that's really powerful. Then in Philippians chapter 2, we just studied this in our uh, series, Hashtag Blessed. And it was how to basically discover, find, and live in happiness. And listen to verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here's a very important verse. Who, though he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he let go. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. I don't think it can get any more clear than that. Right. Right. He was God. He let go of that in order to take the form of a bondservant. And he says, even being found in appearance as a man, and this is what's really interesting because um, this is what the Docetists said. Is say, See, it says appearance. It doesn't mean he was actually a physical man. He just looked like one. They just thought he was like, <laughs> like a ghost walking guess, around. Or yeah, well, he was a hologram. A hologram. You oh, know? he's like Tupac. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> 
so he it says he humbled himself though by becoming obedient to the point of death death on a cross so if you're a hologram how can you die on a cross they That's, do crazy things with holograms. They do, they do crazy, I guess, yeah. <laughs> okay, so see that? It's really clear there in Philippians. And then you take what John wrote in his first letter, chapter 4, and he was actually trying to refute the Gnostics because the first letter of John is a refutation of early Docetism and Gnosticism. And this is what John wrote in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, "...by this you know the Spirit of God." Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And the Docetists, you know, said he was a not flesh. He was an apparition, I guess is the word they use. I like hologram better. You like hologram better. Okay. So that's those are the passages. And as you can see, there's a lot of them. Well, why is a claim particularly a strong claim so important? So they've they've laid these all out in the scriptures of basically this strong claim why does that matter well there's a couple of reasons particularly when we're focusing on that jesus is king king of kings lord of lords and the first thing is this is that the stronger the claim the greater the peace that follows when there is a weak claim to the throne there's all types of division because you have all these factions vying for power and what you see when people are vying for power, they will say they will do anything to get it. And that's the that's the sad part about the political discourse, you know, in America is that you can't really believe anything on. You know, you know what I'm saying? When you listen to people, it's just it's hard to know because everyone's just spouting everything, everything to vying for power. You know, there's no absolute power there's no absolute authority so when people make claims if the claims are weak it can be not good and so you see a lot of wars you see a lot of civil wars uh, during all the middle ages and you see this over you see this in the roman empire people trying to make claims to the throne and if there was no heir then that really created a problem and here's here's a little point of history that people are not really aware of and that is is that because a weak claim was such a problem uh, and created so much uh, political upheaval in nations and countries, what almost all nations did is they started harems for the king so that they always knew that there would be a direct bloodline to the king. And so they would start these harems. They'd have multiple, multiple wives but then you even look in the house of David, you know, he had multiple wives, he had multiple kids, and it created all kinds of strife, Ugh. you know. So so since there's no absolute power or absolute authority, we look at the claim that Jesus has, and why is his, his claim is so powerful? Because he's like, I'm God. Right. <laughs> okay. That's a mic drop. <laughs> That's a mic <laughs> drop right there. Yeah, so so now he can he, he can bring the greatest peace of all. That's why he it says he will be the prince of peace. And uh, uh the government will rest on his shoulders. So Jesus brings peace because his claim of being the king of kings is overwhelming. There is no more powerful claim. Uh, the second reason why a claim is so important, particularly a strong one, is because the problem with power is that it can easily be misused or corrupted. 
And if you have an imperfect person and they have a lot of power, it can uh, be misused by accident or unintentionally. Uh, another thing is that's really important to understand is Lord Acton, who said, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. And that is, and part of it is because you just believe your own press after a while. You know, you have everybody fawning over you constantly. Uh, you could see how, but Jesus Christ, uh, his the derivation of his claim, but it is overwhelming because he that meaning it. Where does it come from? It comes from the fact that he is God himself, and so this ultimate claim means that he is ultimate justice and that's critically important in being king of kings and lord of lords so he is the most just god and then finally uh, a strong claim a powerful claim builds trust amongst everybody else right it's like he's he he is the greatest leader no one comes even close to him so i just I just don't understand. This is just kind of a side note. I mean, I guess, let me phrase this. I get the fact that people don't want to follow Jesus, you know, because they see the implications. Uh, there's a story of a Christian apologist who was debating this Christian or uh, this secular atheist, and they were doing a tour of Canada. And basically, the atheist uh, was, you know, at the end of a debate, they always take a vote. And the atheist was losing. He got 10% of the vote night after night after night after night. And so, but they kind of struck up a friendship because they were kind of traveling together and they were in an elevator going up after dinner. They'd had dinner together. And he just said, well, let me ask you this question. He goes, even if Christianity was true, he goes, would you believe it? And he says, nope. And the apologist said to the atheist, why? He, because I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And so, so I get why people reject it, but right. when, when you say, I don't want to, what you're saying is I want to be the leader of my life. But the problem is, is that you really stink at it. You know, people stink at being the leaders of their own lives yeah. and you need to follow somebody and following Jesus is probably the greatest thing ever because he's the greatest king of kings he's the most just he's the most loving he's the most authentic he's the most transparent he's the most pure he's the most holy i mean there's really no other leader better than him i mean if you're playing in the super bowl who do you want to be the quarterback of the team you know you want the person that nobody can touch right right and so that's really when it comes to the world and reality jesus is truly the king of kings and the lord of lords so it seems the claim that Jesus is king is unparalleled. However, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that Jesus has an earthly claim through the house of David and also a spiritual claim as being God. Um, I mean, it's, it's just really tough to understand. So why do you think people struggle with the concept of the Trinity? Well, I, I just don't think we can comprehend it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a short answer. I mean, just think about it for a second, okay? You, your brain is a material entity, right? It's made up of flesh and blood. And even though we only use 10% of our brain power and you, you can just imagine and think and come up with such great, and what we've discovered and uh, through the scientific me method and the, in mathematics and all these things, you know, theoretical mathematics is one of the most amazing things because it's one of the proofs that God exists because it has the capacity to prove things that don't exist. 
So yeah, let that bounce around in your noggin for a little bit. And, uh, and so what happens is, is that we, how can we comprehend something that exists out of space and time? We're completely and unequivocally trapped by space and time, no matter how big our brains get. And so we're, we're talking about a concept. So what we do is we, we can build models to help us understand. Uh, I was in a physics class once, and this uh, professor, he pulled out like a 3D model, you know, mm -hmm. and he said, okay, you know how on a piece of paper you can draw a box? And then on a piece of paper, you can draw it to look 3D. Right. So even though you're looking at a 2D thing, you say, oh, that's a three-dimensional box because of the way they drew it. Right. Well, he said, this is in 3D, but this is just a model of the fourth dimension. And it was the weirdest looking thing. And he says, so it's a, it's a shadow of what the reality, what the reality is. is. And so... So what we do is we use these types of things, you know, uh, it, you could, uh, a, a scientist would call it like a tesseract. It's a, it's a structure in order to try to grab a hold of these other dimensions and things that exist outside of us. And what it really means is that we try to use things from space and time to describe the nature of the Trinity. And all those are, are shadows. They are not the real thing. And so you can't think in material terms to understand it. You have to think in relational terms. So the best shadow that reflects the Trinity is interpersonalism. It's relational. Right. You know, when you look at like, okay, love. Now, how in the world would we, we can describe love. We can sing about love. You can rap about love. And I did take rap and singing and separate them into different categories. Um, <laughs> so my son would debate me on that. But uh, we write music. We paint pictures to it. We write poetry to it. And a lot of people say that these things, you know, about love are some of the greatest endeavors of the human heart and mind when they come together, right? And what's really interesting is that Love is so strange because you can't actually see it. You can't taste it. You can't eat it. You, you can't touch it, but you know when you're in it. Right. <laughs> and you know when you're not. Isn't that strange? Yeah. And, and yet that in and of itself spiritually is a shadow of the actual Trinity and how it functions. So we can't really comprehend it, but we can kind of get an idea. And I think that the, the way we get an idea is through our own desire for interpersonal relationships, our own thirst for love helps us understand that the, the Trinity was Jesus preexistent. And ultimately what that means is that they, there was this, a unity of love and we experience that love god is love that's what john wrote in first john we experience it in three distinct ways in jesus christ the flesh the holy spirit his divine presence with us for all who are redeemed and then god the father though no one's seen the father we've seen jesus we have the present divine his divine presence within us and so that's how we know the father so that's about the best answer i can give well, I think that sheds some light on it, though. So, 
Uh, we're going to continue discussing more on on um, this on yes. Thursday mm-hmm. and how the culture's influencing it and what we're doing with that. Um, we just appreciate you guys being with us. Make sure you guys are um, tuning in on Sunday as well. We're going to be starting that new series. And then yes. also we just started posting when our Christmas Eve services are going to be. So mm-hmm. start planning when you're going to attend, whether that's in person or online. We have both options for you this year. Um, so hopefully you guys are starting to plan that out. I know things are kind of crazy right now as far as trying to make plans, but you can at least get an idea of which one you might be wanting to go to. So <laughs> there you go. We appreciate you guys joining us, and we will see you on Thursday. All right. Blessings, everyone, and Merry Christmas.